Welcome to Night Sky Tourist, a place to learn the night sky, have fun with its ancient stories, meet astronomers and dark sky advocates, and fall in love with the dark. I'm Vicki Dirksen, your host and author of the website and blog, nightskytourist.com. If you've never visited the website, I invite you to stop by after the podcast. Check out some of the great blog articles, browse through the resource page, and sign up for the newsletters. The newsletters have great content that is exclusive for subscribers. Are you ready for an adventure under the night sky? Let's jump right in. Did you know that birds mostly migrate at night? The distances of their migrations are astounding, and the precision of their navigation is absolutely mind-blowing. We've probably all experienced the jump scare that comes with hearing a bird slam into the window. I always rush to the window to see if the victim has survived while my dogs are barking their heads off following the crashing sound. Imagine over a billion of these crashes during a single migration season, except that they're taking place at night. The good news is we know what's causing a good portion of these migration crashes, and the solution is really easy. There's a new exhibit at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C. called Lights Out. It's all about light pollution and its impact on humans and plants and wildlife and what we can do to mitigate it with smart lighting practices. There's one exhibit that shows a big display of real birds that met their end by slamming into brightly lit buildings in our cities while migrating at night. And as I already said, the solution is fairly easy. And my guest tonight has some fascinating things to share with us about this topic. Andrew Farnsworth is a visiting scientist at the Center for Avian Population Studies at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. He began birding at the age of five, and he quickly fell in love with bird migration. His current research applies remote sensing technologies, including weather surveillance radar, audio and video recording and monitoring tools, citizen science data sets, and more to study bird movements. Andrew is also active in his family foundation, whose mission includes support for climate change education, promoting women's health and rights, children's education, and conservation. He's also a musician when time and space allow. Please join me in welcoming to the podcast, Andrew Farnsworth. Andrew, thank you for joining us on the Night Sky Tours podcast to talk about bird migration and the impact that light pollution has on it. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Vicki. Looking forward to it. So let's start with my introduction to bird migration and what happens when they get confused with light pollution was learning about it through the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Can you tell us what that is and what the lab does? Sure. So the Cornell Lab of Ornithology is quite an amazing place um, with really a, a mission to safeguard the planet's biodiversity through birds. And so there's all manner of uh, research happening there, 
that is ornithological in nature, everything from the migration work uh, that I do to studying bird populations, to studying bird song, bird behavior, all different sorts of uh, activities, as well as running programs that help monitor birds like eBird and Feeder Watch and Nest Watch, and also tools that you can use to learn more about birds, whether it's Bird Academy or Merlin to identify birds. Um, uh, or the eBird app to enter your observations. So really when it comes to thinking about uh, the study of birds in particular in the US, but also globally, but really uh, in the US, the lab is a one-stop shop for all kinds of information about how to engage, how to learn and study, and also how to do really amazing conservation. I always thought of bird watching when I was younger, not, not so much now. When I was younger, I always thought of it as something that like the old people did because uh, the only person I knew who was into bird watching when I was younger was my grandma and she lived up in the mountains. And so she had so many birds and she had the bird ID books and stuff like that. And then it wasn't until I can't even think of the name of what's that silly movie with Owen Wilson, you know, where they, <laughs> what is it called? The big year? The big year. Yeah. And so that was the first time I really comprehended how big bird watching was. Do you think that movie had an impact on like getting people involved in bird watching? You know, uh, I think the appeal of it has been growing since long before that movie came out. That movie did capture some elements of the birding culture, or at least one <laughs> part of the birding culture that that is quite an amazing one. You know, this competitive uh, element. But the appeal of birding and the number of people involved has been enormous for many years. Yeah, for uh, I, I think for the beginning of the, the 20th century, you know, maybe up through the, the middle of the century, there was this um, tendency to think of it as a pursuit for older, well-established people, people that had time, you know, if you were working, uh, if you were young, it was just kind of like, nah, that, that's, that's a very nerdy, uncool thing to do. Um, despite that many, many people, even at that point, were bucking that perception. Um, I mean, it is the biggest hobby uh, in the United States and many places in the world. Uh, people traveling to see birds, lifting binoculars, you know, observing. It's a billion dollar industry. I mean, so it's it's not definitely um, something that's now possible to pigeonhole into any one particular age or race. It's finally starting to broaden from sort of older white men or women into a much more diverse, uh, much uh, in terms of age and race and, you know, and, and also just frankly, all around uh, the world, not just single locations where there is particular income or not. It, it's something that's become this great opportunity for anybody that looks around and thinks, oh, like, wait, like I, I see and hear birds. I want to know more about that. You can do it anywhere. Birds do and, and uh, really cool stuff. They sound cool. They look cool. They're great proxies for our environmental health and for studying, um, you know, how are our ecosystems doing? How's our planet doing? Well, and I imagine having all these apps at your fingertips to help people makes it easy. Like, I think, I think a lower barrier because you don't have to have quite the knowledge. I felt like with my grandma, she had to at least know some stuff to be able to find stuff in her bird books. So it seems yeah. apps make that a little bit easier. 
I agree. I think the idea of what it meant to look through a field guide and learn from something that's very static and a uh, one person's representation, enormous breakthrough when it came out, you know, uh, the Peterson field guide, for example, in the 1930s, um, that that whole method of trying to identify birds based on key field marks and highlighting those and drawing the different plumages, uh, something that you might see in silhouettes of birds, that was like a game changer, right? And so that lowered the bar in terms of the barrier to access and gave that to an enormous uh, large number of people uh, relative to what it had been before. But you're right, with apps and, and access to information basically on any device that you have for anywhere in the world when you're connected or you can download it, suddenly that barrier to learning about sound and learning about vision and as well as entering your information and and then making, a, making those data available to everybody in near real time, and building a community around that, it's all so much easier that that no question has been part of the expansion and, and why it's grown so much. I remember when my kids first paid attention to birds that I remember, and I would make them play outside in the backyard all the time. We live here in Arizona. And I remember my daughter coming in and saying something to me about the years and years and years bird. I was like, the what? <laughs> I had no idea what she was talking about. And so one day she's like, come outside. I can hear it right now. So I went out there and I'm listening and we were looking around. It was a cardinal. <laughs> and so I always now, whenever I hear the cardinal, I mean, they, they make other sounds too, but whenever I hear that, it's the years and years and years bird. <laughs> yeah. Well, you said this is exactly the reason, you know, th that you can perceive those kinds of sounds and they're like part of your perceptual, you know, capabilities. Like they, it's right in the range of human hearing, you know, for, for many of these sounds. It's like, wait, what is that? You know, and then, then that you can go out and figure out what it is and maybe even imitate it and have the bird come in and, you know, check you out. And then you get to see it closer. Um, it's really just this wonderful opportunity to engage with the world around you that is so easy to do. So light pollution is such a big deal. So whenever I'm having discussions about dark sky preservation, mm -hmm. this topic of bird migrations specifically and the death that comes to many of those migrating birds because of light pollution is a big conversation. So can you explain to everyone why light pollution is such a dramatic problem for the migrating birds? And that the fact that they migrate a lot at night, I never knew that until I started learning about this stuff. Yeah, so the nocturnal movement of birds, these migrations of literally say in the US, you know, billions of birds, like every fall, it's four to five billion birds that pass uh, through, the, through the US or over the US at night. Um, that's when most migration happens. And that's not just the US where that's the case. It's all, it's all around the world. And so the fact that birds migrate at night, well, they do so because the atmosphere is more stable, less turbulence, the sun's not beating down on them. So it's more energy efficient. They're not losing water. They can feed during the day. In theory, there's less predation at night. And generally, there's less of a hazard at night. Um, but because these birds are migrating at night and they have all these incredible adaptations to sensing the magnetic field, um, to, to having really um, perceptive acoustic senses, uh, to being able to orient to celestial bodies and calibrate that with the sunset and kind of like know where they are on the planet when they're there, those 
abilities to navigate and orient at night, um, those have evolved uh, without the presence of human light pollution for millions of years. And so when you enter light pollution in, uh, you have a very powerful stimulus that both attracts birds and disorients them. So the fact that birds' perceptual capabilities to sense the magnetic field and, and calibrate with the sun and see the stars and use sound. And when you enter light, this really powerful, you know, powerful uh, kind of cue into that, it basically short circuits a lot of their capabilities. So as is the case with many organisms that are active at night, they're attracted to that light. The amazing thing is though, obviously it's one that's fairly easily within our control to be able to turn lights out, right? Similar to, to uh, experiences of, well, wanting to perceive the night sky naturally, turn off your light so you can do that. The benefits of being able to see the sky as a human and experience the Milky Way, oh, that saves energy. Uh, it, it promotes you know healthy migration for birds. It's good for human health. It's like all this stuff goes along with that flip of a switch that's a fairly easy fix for the problem. What would you say is the most problematic type of light pollution for the birds? Is it the buildings or are there other things that are worse? So the buildings, whether it's a single story residential house or an enormous commercial skyscraper or very bright lights that are steady burning on a ship out in the ocean, those kinds of light that come from human infrastructure that are continuous, whether it's indoor, like a window that, bird, that birds can perceive, or whether it's decorative uplighting outside, basically unmitigated light that's just broadcasting at night is a serious issue for attracting and disorienting birds. Any place where you can eliminate that, if it's not a safety concern, or reduce it or shield it, it's gonna be an enormous benefit. I would love for you to share with us about a couple of programs that I'm somewhat familiar with. One is the Lights Out program, uh, which I believe started in Texas, and the other is called BirdCast. So can you share with us about those two programs? Sure. So Lights Out, actually, there are many, many places where this started. We happen to have a pilot project in Texas that really was originally focused on Houston and Dallas, uh, but has expanded to many other cities uh, since and other parts of the state. But there are Lights Out uh, programs all across the United States, New York, Baltimore, Chicago, where there's been a longstanding one, uh, almost the longest standing of all, Toronto, um, in Texas, and the West Coast. Um, and a lot of these uh, programs have evolved because people have been concerned largely because of monitoring bird collisions at buildings and saying, wait, you know, there, there's something that we can do here uh, easily on a local level to prevent some of this mortality. There's this, you know, this sort of intersection of the light pollution at night and all the reflective glass and how to address those kinds of issues. So the lights out programs that have evolved in all of these different places are generally under local operation. Often it's a local Audubon society or a local birding club. Uh, sometimes it's dark sky, sometimes it's others that have uh, aggregated the people together that are interested to say, yeah, I wanna make a change. 
And um, they're really wonderful opportunities, basically highlight the issue of light pollution and highlight that it's something that you can control on an individual basis, right? And that doing so is beneficial to the birds. It's obviously energy saving. It's good for human health. It's good for human experience outside. So, um, so that's on the, on the one hand. Uh, Birdcast, which is a really amazing and fun, fun project with, I've, I've had the good fortune to be involved with it for uh, a good 20 years now, um, really is all about uh, kind of showcasing the spectacle of bird migration. Well, in the most public uh, forward facing approach, the use of radar data to explore in particular nocturnal migration and highlight the magnitude of it, where it's happening, making forecasts, um, live maps of when and where migration is occurring. That is all at the intersection of computer science, who uh, the computer scientists were interested in the messy data and making predictions from really challenging information, and ornithologists who obviously wanted to know, well, can we predict where and when birds are going to appear in a particular place? As a birder, I know when certain birds or large numbers are going to appear. Can we formalize that into kind of like a weather model, for example, like forecasts are done with weather data, and it turns out we can do all those things. And so this project, uh, birdcast.info, is where you can find some of these forecast maps, the live maps, what's called the migration dashboard that on a county basis uh, in the contiguous U.S. tells you, oh, what is the pattern of uh, bird density over this particular county over the course of the night, over the season? What speed, altitude, and direction are they moving? Um, really fascinating information about birds moving at night that we can't experience otherwise unless we use this special uh, set of tools that the radar data afford us. And, and by the way, the radar data, so when we think about radar, we don't often think of biology or birds. But radar uh, is exceptional at surveying all sorts of things in the atmosphere, whether it's planes, weather, uh, and, and obviously different kinds of precipitation, birds, bats, insects, pollen, all of that stuff can be detected by different kinds of radars. And the network that we have in the US, which is run by NOAA and the National Weather Service, it's all freely available data. It's been archived for the last 30 years. So it's this incredible opportunity to use this sensor that happens to be really good at detecting biological activity that's mostly birds, also bats and insects, but mostly birds. This is such cool stuff to me because I grew up in Northern Idaho and <laughs> the only birds I can like have any real memory of in terms of migrating was watching the Canada geese go overhead because they're big and they're up there honk 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 so you can hear them coming from far away so mm -hmm. as a kid that was my introduction to the concept of bird migration and i never saw anything bigger in terms of migration or anything noticeable other than that and yeah. so i didn't know that birds mostly migrated at night so the first time i heard all this stuff you just talked about like being able to track it by radar and stuff blew my mind and then to hear those numbers like you just said quarter of a billion or three quarters of a billion yeah. in a single night is mind-boggling and so it's so important I think for us to understand that is what's happening overhead and no we're not seeing it with our eyes because usually we're indoors or we're sleeping or it's just too darn dark to be able to see it this is such a cool way to track it like I don't know much about radar but I, that to me is super cool to be able to track. Some of those birds are small. To be able to oh, yeah. track those with radar is 
Absolutely awesome. What are some things that you could recommend to people just in their own homes or if they owned a small business? Um, what would you tell them could be the single most important thing they could do to do their part to protect the birds? And what's the most important times of the year to do that? That's a good question. So I think one very easy thing to do when it comes to thinking about light pollution is wherever and whenever you can turn off lights, especially lights that aren't essential, essential for, you know, for some kind of safety or security, wherever and whenever you can turn them off, turn them off. Now, if you need to start refining like, well, are there times when it's better to do it or not? Okay, well, so bird migration in the spring and in the fall in the Northern Hemisphere, um, where the US is, um, we're talking about kind of, you know, March to June, and then again, uh, late July through uh, November. Those are the periods that kind of capture most of the migration. If you want to refine even further and say, well, I, I really for some reason can only turn my lights off during a narrower window. There are peak periods that we can identify in particular from the radar data. Uh, broadly for the US, the last week of April through uh, the second week of May, or uh, the last uh, two weeks of September through the first two weeks of October, if you had to narrow it down to sort of like a monthish period when to try to extinguish all lights if possible. There are all sorts of other ways that you can do it that maybe if you can't eliminate light completely, you can shield it so the light doesn't go up and escape out, right? So you can basically direct it in the proper direction. You can lower the intensity to whatever the lowest possible is that you can make it and still see what you need to see. You can cover shades if you're in buildings. If you, for some reason, if you have cleaning crews that are operating at night in big uh, commercial buildings in cities and the lights need to be on, cover them up, you know, close the shades down or install occupancy sensors so that they come in uh, when the crews come in and clean, the lights come on when they leave, they go off. Because we know indoor and outdoor lights are both part of the problem when it comes to the light escaping. So any ways you can minimize that, if it's totally turning them off or shading them or decreasing the intensity, all of that is really good. And, and if you need to be even more kind of ad hoc with the decision that you only have say, well, if we have some iconic structure or iconic light show that people need to see for a particular reason, um, for example, the Tribune Light in Manhattan, right? Um, that there's a very powerful emotional, sociological, psychological connection to that and a very important reason to have that memorial that would say, if you don't have to turn it off, don't turn it off. But if there are large numbers of birds getting attracted to it, uh, rather than seeing a pile of dead birds at the bottom, turn it off as those aggregations start to occur. And I've heard at that 9-11 memorial when they do the tribute of light, that that's what they do, that as the birds start to accumulate, they'll turn the lights off until the birds disperse and then bring it back on. And I think yes. it's amazing that we can have, we can have both. We can have that tribute, knowing that it's at the beginning of that migration season, we can have that tribute, but not have an all or nothing mindset about it. You know, what's interesting too, is that all of the things that you've mentioned that people can do to protect the night sky around them, to protect the birds. It's the exact same thing that they would do to protect fireflies, to protect sea turtle hatchlings, and to protect their own human health 
and give us a better view of the night sky. So it's not like we need one solution for the birds and a different solution for the bats. You know, it's the same solution for everything and it benefits our human health on top of that. That's right. And it saves energy too, which is an enormous, that's an enormous cost for uh, residential and commercial buildings is, you know, excess light. I mean, even with LEDs and whatever transition to LEDs might be, it's still an enormous source of dollars that just go out the door and those dollars embody, you know, a large carbon footprint. Well, Andrew, I really appreciate your, your, your time here. Can you share with everybody where they can get more information about you and some of these programs that we've talked about today? Sure. So um, the BirdCast website, birdcast.info, has during migration seasons the forecasts and live maps of where bird migration is either going to occur or occurring. There are stories that are posted there. There's information about lights out um, and in particular what you can do and how you can do it on that website. Uh, more broadly, uh, you know, you can visit the Cornell Lab. You can download Merlin from, from the App Store or Google Play and then go out in the world and see what you can see. Perfect. I'm going to make this really easy for everybody. If they just scroll down to the show notes, I'm going to put links in there for all of those things that you just mentioned. So all they have to do is go and click and they'll get right there. Excellent. Thank you. Andrew, thank you so much for sharing with us today. This is such an interesting topic and, um, and it's easy for all of us to get involved to do a little something for it. So thank you. Well, thank you, Vicki. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you all who are listening and uh, good luck getting out there. Are you enjoying the Night Sky Tours podcast without additional ads from me? I love ad-free podcasts too. So instead of taking your time up with ads that you don't care about, I'd like to ask you if you take a little bit of your time to do something that's incredibly valuable for this podcast. Rate this podcast. It's a quick and easy way to help more people find night sky tourists so they can enjoy the interviews and the star tours that you enjoy. If you listen on Spotify, just click on those five stars and let the world know that this is a podcast worth listening to. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, click on the five stars and leave a written review. Every star helps Night Sky Tourists give more people a chance to fall in love with the dark. Let's work together to get this podcast into the ears of more people. Thank you so, so, so much for taking a few moments to give Night Sky Tourists some stars and some love. It's time for our night sky tour for mid-September 2023. Pause the podcast, turn off all the lights, and I'll meet you outside under the stars. Before we start our tour, I want to let you know about two events coming up in October. The first is the annular eclipse on October 14th. It's annular, not annual. An annular eclipse is when the moon is at its farthest distance from the Earth during a solar eclipse, so it doesn't completely cover the sun. We end up seeing a ring of fire around the moon. 
This phenomena will be visible across portions of North America on October 14th, 2023. If you live in the Phoenix area, we'll only see a partial eclipse, but Night Sky Tourist and the Fountain Hills Dark Sky Association will be partnering to host a small event, and you are invited. Another event is International Observe the Moon Night on October 21st. This event is sponsored by NASA with events being hosted all around the world. Night Sky Tourist is helping with an event in Fountain Hills, Arizona, where I live. And this event also involves Arizona State University, the Fountain Hills Dark Sky Association, the Fountain Hills Library, and the River of Time Museum. To get all the details about these two events, make sure that you're signed up for my newsletter. Visit nightskytourist.com and scroll down the homepage and you'll see where you can subscribe. And I promise to never spam you because you know what? Spam is gross. For tonight's tour of the night sky, you'll probably want to use a stargazing app to help you pick out the stars of the constellations that I'm going to mention. The reason is that you probably live in a place where light pollution takes away either a little or a lot of your stars. And these constellations that we're going to look at tonight have fairly faint stars. If you don't have a stargazing app on your phone already, just get a free one. There's no need to pay for one. There are many, many great apps out there. But since people always ask the exact app that I use, I usually default to Skyview Lite. If you need to download an app, pause the podcast until you get that done. Now, before you go staring into the abyss of your smartphone screen and wrecking your night vision, turn your screen brightness down to its lowest setting and then turn your phone to night mode. This should give your screen a reddish hue instead of the night vision destroying blue hue. Okay, now that we've taken care of that, let's get down to business. We'll start by looking at two easy naked eye constellations that have been in our view all summer. The first is Scorpius, and it truly looks like a giant scorpion low in the southwestern sky. If you're at a more northerly latitude, its curved tail might dip below the horizon. I'm in Arizona, and so the entire constellation is above the horizon, but not by much. If you live among the Polynesian islands in South Pacific, you may have grown up seeing Scorpius as a fish hook, according to local traditions. And I love that this was included in the wonderful movie Moana. And if you have not seen Moana yet, you've got to do it. To the east of Scorpius is Sagittarius. Sagittarius is a centaur, which means he's half man and half horse. I've never been able to visualize a centaur in these stars, but I can see a smaller picture of a teapot. It has a pointy lid. Can you see it? If you're under really dark skies, you'll notice that there is steam rising from the spout of the teapot. That is the Milky Way, our own galaxy. And if you do indeed see it, congratulations. Over 80% of people on Earth can no longer see it from where they live. Okay, this is where it gets a little trickier to see the constellations. To the east of Sagittarius is Capricornus, a horned goat. If I use my imagination, I can conjure up an image of a horned goat's head 
But to me, it looks like a really wide V with another V sitting on top of it. The two stars at the tips of the horns are brighter than the rest of the stars in this constellation, but since the rest are so dim, this is a tough one to find. Use your stargazing app if you can't see it, and see if it helps you to locate the rest of the stars with your naked eye. Now look farther toward the east to spot Aquarius, another tricky constellation. It does have a few somewhat bright stars, but most of them are more faint. Your stargazing app will be really helpful. Once you find Aquarius, your stargazing app should also be able to show you that Saturn is hanging out in Aquarius. It looks like a small golden star. And if you have binoculars or a backyard telescope, make sure you take a look at it. It's gonna be hanging out in the night sky through the end of the year, but this is one of the best times to look at it because it's closer to Earth right now, and it's better to view when it's higher in the sky like it is right now. As we get toward the end of the year, it's only gonna be visible low toward the western horizon, and the viewing isn't quite as great as it is right now. And finally, shift your eyes a bit farther toward the east, just above the eastern horizon, and you're gonna look for Pisces. Every star in this constellation is somewhat faint, and seeing it under light polluted skies is extremely difficult. Put your stargazing app to work to find the stars and to see if you can actually spot them with your naked eye. So this was a tour across what is called the ecliptic. If you could stretch Earth's equator way out into space like a rubber band, there are 12 constellations that fall across that circle, and we call that the ecliptic. Of those 12, we were able to see five of them tonight. Scorpius, Sagittarius, Capricornus, Aquarius, and Pisces. Some people refer to the ecliptic as the zodiac. Now, if you're stargazing between 10 p.m. and midnight, which is a little later than I'm supposing most people are viewing, then you won't get to see Scorpius or Sagittarius in the West, but you will be able to see Aries and Taurus in the East. The September equinox is coming on September 23rd, which is going to be before our next episode. So for those living in the Northern Hemisphere, happy fall, and it's actually the more appropriate time for all things pumpkin spice, in my opinion. And for those of you in the Southern Hemisphere, happy spring and warmer days. Be sure to check out the show notes for everything mentioned in this episode or visit nightskytourist.com slash 74. And don't forget, go to Spotify or Apple Podcast and leave me some great stars and some reviews. Again, visit nightskytourist.com slash 74 for information on everything in this episode. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Night Sky Tourist Podcast. If you enjoy the Night Sky Tourist Podcast, please show your support by subscribing to it in your podcatcher and leave a written review. Your reviews are really important to me and they help others discover the podcast. Be sure to visit nightskytourist.com for great articles and resources. And while you're there, sign up for the newsletter for exclusive content. 
We'll see you here again in two weeks. Until then, keep looking up.